Today we are going to be reading from Mark chapter 1 and then skip over to chapter 8. So if you guys want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time to gather and hear your word. And we thank you for this opportunity to come together as a community of brothers and sisters and glorify your name. So, Holy Spirit, we just ask you to soften our hearts and give us the eyes to see and ears to hear as we listen to today's sermon. Jesus, we need you in all aspects of our lives, whether that's at home with our family, at work, with people we interact with in the city. We need your humility your grace and your love and your forgiveness. And we just are so grateful for who you are in this world. We pray this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to be with y'all. My name's Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. It's it's really good to be with y'all. Not not just because uh, uh, preaching into my phone every week is truly a miserable experience, <laughs> and I know makes me a more miserable preacher to listen to because it's just quiet and weird and no energy, uh, but I, I'm still excited about Jesus. I hope you are too, but, but back there in, in with only me and my phone doesn't bring out the best. You guys bring out the best. It's wonderful. Um, so we are... Uh, we're going to start with the question that, that Steely read for us as he jumped, jumped ahead to Mark chapter 8. It's a question that Jesus put to his disciples. Jesus asked his disciples, um, who do you say that I am? Uh, or who do the people say that I am? They talked. There's some theories. There's some ideas. And then he asked them, but, but who do you say that I am? And that story in Mark 8, as we're going to see, Uh, As we work through the Gospel of Mark over the coming months together, 
Um, it's the center point of Mark. It happens in chapter 8. And Mark is like, what, 16 chapters? It's right around the very midpoint. And it, the first half of the book deals with this question of, of who is this Jesus? What is this guy? What's he like? What's he teaching? And then Jesus makes it explicit in Mark chapter 8. Who do they say that I am and who do you say that I am? And then right after Peter gives this answer, we think you're the Christ. We think you're the Messiah. We, we think you're the Son of God. We think all of these things. He says, okay, then it's time to, begin, time to go to Jerusalem where I'm going to be killed. And the second half of the book starts this just steady, dead set, focused march to the cross. Um, but that question that hangs at the center of the book, it's, it's, it's the question. There's no more important question. And to risk ruining what might be a serious moment, I, I could not get out of my... How many people have seen Talladega Nights, the Will, <laughs> Will Ferrell movie? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, perhaps the greatest, the greatest on-screen depiction of prayer that's ever happen, happened in American film happens in that, that, that movie. Where they're, they're at the dinner table, and Will Ferrell's character, the NASCAR driver, begins to pray. And he's fixed He can only pray to tiny little sweet baby Jesus. And he's just like, little baby Jesus with your little tiny hand that can't even grab anything. <laughs> And his wife's like, why are you praying to baby Jesus? He grew up. And he's like, I prefer to think of Jesus as a baby. So that's who I'm going to pray to. And then his friend, his friend jumps in and says, well, I like to picture Jesus, Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. You know, it says, I'm, you know, I want to be business-like, but I'm ultimately here to party. And uh, the line, I, I just, I rewatched the clip and I put it here. The quote is, I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party too. And you, we laugh at it. It's silly. But there's something profound right there. He, he, they just captured it. That's what we all do. You know, I like to do this. So I, I'd like for my Jesus to do this. I'd like for Jesus to be this. So who is he? Like many of our spiritual but not religious neighbors would say, was he sort of a great human ethicist? He's the one that coined the stinking golden rule. Like, did you know that? The golden rule, like the benchmark, still sort of human ethical vision. That was Jesus. Maybe our greatest ethicist. Was he an especially insightful spiritual teacher? Pause on that. Should I use a different mic? Um, yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Sweet. I'll just, I'll just angle this bad boy over here. Is that better? Perfect. So, so is he a specially insightful sort of human teacher? Um, or, or like our Muslim neighbors believe, was he a, a powerful, important prophet who did speak on behalf of God, but, but nonetheless was importantly not the son of God because God doesn't have children? Or was he uh, just another would-be Jewish Messiah? There were plenty of them around Jesus' time, who made great claims about being the, the prophesied one, but who ultimately, like many others, was just dead and gone within a few years of making these, these claims. Is, is Jesus primarily sort of like a kitschy fashion accessory, like represented by a Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt? I know that's like a 2002 reference. No one's wearing those anymore. 
but Jesus' pop culture stuff like keeps coming and going? Is he a status symbol like a diamond-encrusted cross? Is he chiefly a useful political tool to be reimagined by Republicans and Democrats both so that as luck would have it, he always and in every place is exactly aligned with my party's political views and he's always adamantly opposed to whatever the other party is trying to do. Is that what he's for? Is that who he is? Is he my chief cheerleader? Functioning as some kind of like inner voice that once again just so happens to agree with whatever it is I think, whatever it is I want to do, whatever it is I'm up for, and in effect who lifts me up as my own God. Who did Jesus even think that he was? Did his followers just put a bunch of words in his mouth and blow his claims out of proportion and take what was really just kind of this modest Jewish rabbi and turn him into this crazy thing? Or, let's keep going, like so many of the sort of popular new atheists from a few years ago uh, claimed and do claim, was he a lunatic? Was he one who sincerely believed he was God, but who was tragically, delusionally, like epically mistaken? Was he dangerous? Is Jesus' ethical and spiritual vision actually regressive, actually oppressive, actually a force holding back genuine goodness and justice in the world? Or, like the Pharisees of his day said, was he a glutton and a drunk who had the facade of morality but inside was just as impulsive and carnal as you and as me? Was he a liar and a fraud, an egotistical deceiver? Was he a demon or empowered by demons as they once accused him? Was he an egregious sinner who committed the gravest sin possible in the eyes of God and in the eyes of his contemporary Jewish worshipers, the sin of blasphemy, worthy of punishment by death? Plenty of people thought that. And we could go on and on and on. Which is it? Who is he? And where do we go to get an answer to that question? Is it every man for himself? We're just left to, this seems good to me. This is what my parents told me. Well, we go to the Gospels. We go to the Gospels. I, I want to take a minute, a preview here. We're, we're about to start months and months and months through the Gospel of Mark. And we'll probably take some breaks, go do some other things, and come back to it. But uh, for months and months, we're going to be working through the Gospel according to Mark. But I want to start by just talking about the Gospels in general. What, what are the Gospels and why should we think they're better than anything else for getting the answer to this question, who is Jesus? Well, the Gospels, we're told, are, or we, we know, are the earliest written eyewitness-formed accounts of Jesus' life and teaching. And so, uh, and, and with that, along with the rest of the New Testament... They are the most well-attested, well-preserved ancient manuscripts of all time. We have comically more ancient, old, early manuscripts of the New Testament than we do literally anything else in antiquity. But, but what are they? What are they? Well, it's first, it's useful to think about like, how they got there. So it's useful to think about what, what actually, the process actually happened. So there were events in history... We believe, I hope you believe, that are behind these Gospels. So there's Jesus, this man who was born, and he lived, 
He lived to be 30-something. But then for just like three years and some change, he had this public ministry. That's it. The last three years of his life, he had this public ministry where he began to teach and he was doing miracles and he was getting into religious conflicts and all these things before he was ultimately killed. Um, So there was these events. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is healing. Jesus going to the cross. As some claim, Jesus raising from the dead and on and on. Um, And then you've got Jesus raising from the dead, at least the gospels claim, and commissioning his closest disciples to go and be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Go and tell what you've seen here. Go take it out to everyone, everywhere. And then as they were doing that, uh, there's all kinds of evidence and just natural speculation, knowing how people are and how things work, that all these oral traditions began to start. So uh, think a couple decades after Jesus' crucifixion, like people are telling the story of Jesus and they remember like, oh, this one teaching, I remember, I was there. I was on the hillside when he taught this one thing. And that story gets passed down. Maybe somebody writes it down who can write. These little fragments of stories and teachings and oral traditions, they're getting out there and there's all kinds of things. Narratives, uh, stories of Jesus doing things, doctrinal and ethical teachings. Remember when Jesus said this? Um, hymns and poetry, early ones that made their way into the other New Testament writings. And then you've got around that time the letters beginning to be written. You've got Paul and the other apostles starting to write, theologically reflecting on the life of Jesus and what it means for these new communities of people who really did come to believe that this guy rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. And so all of this is, is out there. And then the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with years, la- years later, a couple decades later, years of reflection, of thinking back to what it was like to walk with Jesus. Or in conversation with the people who were walking with Jesus, who, who, the people who were there, who traveled and lived with him for years. Thinking about it, being in the ch- early church community, living life, trying to be disciples of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. All this reflection and insight and thinking and praying and spirit guidance. It got to the point where they said, you know what, we're going to sit down and we're going to write these authoritative, definitive accounts of what actually happened. Because there's stories and there's fragments and there's this and there's that. We've got Paul's letters now, but we need to get the story down. And so that's what they did. And we produced four canonical gospels books that sought to faithfully communicate the good news of Jesus. So I just want to say a few quick things about these these Gospels. First, I want to talk about the basis. That's the eyewitness testimonies. Both John and Matthew were in the inner circle of Jesus. They're part of the Twelve. Their testimonies were, I mean, it doesn't get much closer than that for writing an account of Jesus. And they were, they were the ones that were known by the early church to be specifically trusted by Jesus to take the message forward. Uh, Luke was a, uh, was a companion of Paul for many of his missionary journeys. He was a his, uh, kind of an amateur historian who he tells you at the beginning of Luke and then part two, the beginning of Acts, exactly his process, how he's, why he set out to do this and all the kind of interviews he conducted. He was one who wanted to put together sort of with this scholarly mindset an account of Jesus. That's the Gospel of Luke. And then you've got the Gospel of Mark, which uh, Mark is a character who shows up uh, multiple times as an associate with Paul. Him and Paul and Barnabas get in conflict over whether Mark is even useful for their missionary journeys and all this stuff. Very interesting. 
But the Gospel of Mark is believed to be Mark, John Mark's account from the witness of Peter of the life of Jesus. And I'm not going to take the time to get into why scholars think that, but I, I think it's compelling. It's very likely that the Gospel of Mark is basically Peter's version of the Gospel, his perspective, his take. It's deeply rooted in his eyewitness account. So that's the basis for where these things come from. But the style, style's interesting. The Gospels are ancient biographical narratives, and, and each of those words are important. When we say ancient, like, I'm really convinced that like Christian pop culture makes it really hard to remember that our faith is an ancient faith, you know? Like, we've got, like, pop, Christian pop music and, like, all these little, like, the book industry and concerts and, like, these big flashy uh, conferences and none of that's bad necessarily, but it doesn't feel ancient, does it? Feels like something that's, like, recent and modern and sort of tacky (laughs) in its own way. But but the, the New Testament is ancient. It is two millennia old. These Gospels are ancient, written in a world that is very much unlike our own. Um, they're ancient, and then they're, they're, they're biographical narratives, and, and biogra- they're, they're very much written in the style of, of the ancient biographies of their day. They're playing with conventions that would have been common, and they're truthful. They're truthful. That's not to downplay their truthfulness, but they're in a kind of literary tradition that helps us understand what, what kinds of things these, uh, these authors are trying to get at. And then I would just emphasize the word narrative to say that they're stories. The Gospels have beginnings, middles, ends. Um, they're structured in a way to like, they're art. They're meant to, to emphasize things. They're meant to be uh, beautiful and meant to actually do the things that only art can do in stirring up um, the heart to give you a perspective that just like a table of facts and figures could not give you into the life of Jesus. I, I love this quote. Um, this is from uh, Jonathan Pennington. Has this amazing book called Reading the Gospels Wisely. He says, he says, a reason we need the Gospels is because story communicates truth most comprehensively and transformatively. Speaking of art in its broadest sense, uh, David Goya observes, art addresses us in the fullness of our being, simultaneously speaking to our intellect, emotions, intuition, imagination, memory, and physical senses. There are some truths about life that can be expressed only as stories or songs or images. And then Pennington goes on to say, this is true and well said. The most powerful discourse of truth is not abstract doctrinal propositions, but stories and images and art, because these engage our whole person, not just our minds. And I think that's why the Gospels are what they are. That's why just having the letters of Paul that truthfully told us Jesus was the Christ, and he died for our sins, and he rose from the dead, and all of these true things, those Apparently to God, those weren't enough. We needed this artistic, beautiful, like comprehensive, four actually of them takes on the life of Jesus expressed like not just as a a personal letter articulating facts, but an artistic rendering, a truthful, hear me, truthful, deeply truthful, perfectly truthful 
but artistic rendering of the life of Jesus. But what about their authority? So that's all well and good. They wrote something beautiful. They wrote something ancient. Uh, but we're also told in, in the words of Scripture, and, and it also is just the, the mere fact is the early church began to recognize instantly that these four Gospels were, the, were breathed out by God. There's a human author, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but they recognize the, the power of the God himself co-equally pinning these words. And these weren't just viewed as, oh yeah, that's a nice perspective on Jesus, but no, these are God's own <laughs> depiction of the king. They're spirit-inspired. They have an authority that, um, though, there, though other gospels were written and the church instantly recognized that's, that's not him. That's not Jesus. That's not right. This is not authored by God. Another thing to note is the place that the, the gospel should take in our Bible. And I would just say that they're the center point of the Bible. They're biblically central. And that's because Jesus is the center. Center, not sinner. <laughs> Jesus is the center of the whole story. Everything in the Old Testament is looking forward from page three of the Bible, is looking forward to the sending of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross and otherwise. Um, and everything after the Gospels is looking back. Acts is like, what did Jesus empower his disciples to do through the Spirit? The letters are all like addressed to communities, but looking back on the life and ministry and teachings and significance of the cross of Jesus and commenting on that. Jesus and his life and his ministry, his death, his resurrection, they sit in the middle. Um, Pennington, he, he says we, could, we should think of the four Gospels as like the keystone in a Roman archway. So if you've ever seen like an ancient stone arch, uh, everything falls apart unless you have the exact right keystone that can hold both sides together from falling apart. That's the Gospels for us. They, they make the whole of the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament actually make sense and be comprehensible together as one story. And then finally, I would say, what, what's the goal or the purpose of these Gospels? And I, I, we could say more than this, but I think these are three really important things to note. One, they're an introduction to the living Jesus. They are, they are uh, each of the Gospel writers is convinced they're not just talking about a guy who lived and died, but they're talking about a risen Jesus who lives now. From their perspective, decades after the fact, they were convinced he is still alive and reigning and working through his spirit in this world. And we can still come face to face with him through his spirit today and through these texts today. Another point is that the gospels are written to persuade you theologically. They, they're trying to tell you, some, they're not just trying to record the brute facts about Jesus. Because even if he died, even if he rose from the dead, someone could say, oh, that's interesting, or that's weird. Or, Man, we sure do live in a weird universe, don't we? Where random crazy things can happen. It's, it's not enough to just lay supposed brute facts. Your facts have to be interpreted, and the Gospels interpret them. We would say without error. They give us the authoritative, God-breathed interpretation of what the life of Jesus meant. And they're trying to convince you that it's true. 
We're trying to convince you to give your life to this Jesus, to believe he is who Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are saying he is, and that that comports with who Jesus claimed he was. And then finally, the Gospels, they're written to, to, for the ongoing work of forming you as a disciple, forming me as a disciple, that as we continue to come to these stories again and again and again, we will actually meet him there and then be changed by him. Begin to follow after him. Begin to take up our crosses and follow him in his words. It's what the Gospels are for. But what about Mark? about Mark specifically? Well, as I mentioned, the, the author is, is very widely believed to be John Mark. Uh, doesn't make that claim in the text, and so we're not dogmatically committed to that. If something came out tomorrow that's like, here's some archaeological evidence that Mark didn't write Mark, uh, we'd say, okay, great. That doesn't, that's fine. But the external evidence says this is John Mark working off of the testimony of Peter, the eyewitness testimony of Peter, who was, Peter was one of Jesus' absolute closest inner circle disciples and the key leader of the earliest church. This is also widely thought to be the earliest gospel written, the first one, that Matthew, uh, Luke, and John came later. Um, this is the earliest one, probably dated, it could be anywhere between A.D. 55 and A.D. 70. Um, and there's a whole lot of scholarly literature trying to get to the bottom of that, but somewhere in that range. Um, find my place here. And I just want to note, kind of the, finally, the, the unique perspective and style amongst, amongst Mark, amongst the four Gospels. Like, have you ever wondered, why are there four of these things? Especially the first time you read it, you read Matthew, and you're like, okay, I got it, the story of Jesus. Then you come to Mark, and you're kind of like, well, there's the story of Jesus again. <laughs> it's a little shorter. Maybe there's a couple different stories, a little bit different emphasis. You know, okay, interesting. Okay, let's, let's keep going. You get to Luke, and you're like, well, there's the story of Jesus again. Okay, interesting. <laughs> and then John, there's the story of Jesus again, although John feels quite a bit different than the other three. But you know, each offers a valid and necessary perspective and kind of flavor of Jesus. Each is kind of giving, giving its view of him uh, from a slightly different angle, all ultimately creating together a fuller and more comprehensive and complete picture of this Jesus. But Mark specifically, some things I want to note about it is it's, it's a book of kind of, and this might sound kind of cheesy to say, it's like fast-paced action as far as the Gospels go. Uh, it's not fast and furious, but it is uh, the, the biblical gospel version of fast-paced action. He, Mark is always using this word immediately, 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 immediately. Uh, in the Greek, they use the historical present tense a lot. We go into the house and he sees. That's how this book is largely written. It's very interesting. It's moving you forward through the story. Mark actually has relatively few instances of Jesus just stopping and giving long teachings. Mark, didn't, Mark doesn't have the Sermon on the Mount, for example, uh, which was evidently Jesus' like hallmark teaching. So Mark just keeps showing you what he's like, leaning into that rather than the teaching side. Both are important. I'm so glad we have those teachings in the other Gospels. Um, he's shown through action what kind of Messiah, what kind of king, what kind of God he is. 
It's this idea that the Son of God has like broken into history and he's just like barreling towards the cross is the sense you get reading Mark relative to the others. Another big theme is, is suffering. Mark, probably more than any of the other Gospels, focuses on the suffering both of Jesus. More percentage is devoted to his Passion Week in Mark than any of the other Gospels. But also the suffering of the disciples. The preparation for the Christian heart to expect opposition and suffering if they're going to try to sincerely follow Jesus. There's also a real emphasis on mystery and secrecy as Jesus is shown, like Mark gives us the title, verse 1, tells us he's the son of God, but then from then on, it's all the characters, even the disciples puzzling over who is this guy? What is he about? And Jesus is constantly telling people he heals or whatever, don't tell anyone. Keep it secret. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. Um, there's also this, this thing of the dullness and the misunderstanding of the crowds and the disciples. Basically, everyone who comes to Jesus gets him wrong, including his closest followers. And I, I, I was really compelled by this. There's a commentator named Tim Gombes who says, I'll just read this. He says, a unique feature of Mark is the very negative portrayal of the disciples. They almost never do the things that Jesus says disciples should do, whereas many outsider characters do the things disciples are supposed to do. The disciples are called disciples, but they don't act like they are. And other characters are not called disciples, but they act as if they are. And this raises all sorts of questions, and that's the point. This is the really interesting part. Listen to this. Gomba says, Mark's narrative is designed to unsettle Christian audiences challenging them to examine how and why they are not doing what Jesus has taught. They've become complacent. And I, I'm, it's possible that all the little stylistic choices that Mark is getting at are, are, are driving to that end. Um, there, to use a really obscure illustration, there, there's this very interesting like, style of filmmaking that I kind of learned about somewhat recently. It's called the transcendental style in film. Um, and it's mostly directors in like the 50s and 60s that, that tried to do this. But the idea, have you ever felt like a movie was trying to bore you? Yeah, so usually it's not a good thing. Uh, usually it's unintentional, a boring movie. But this is a style of filmmaking, like Yasujiru Ozu, uh, Andre Tarkovsky, um, uh, Robert Bresson, these experimental filmmakers who basically said, here's what we want to do. Movies are all about, even in the 50s, they would say, movies are all about flash. There's always music telling you how to feel. There's always fast cuts, kind of shifting your attention. Uh, the performances are big and theatrical and all this crazy stuff. And they're saying the result is you just, you just get beaten down into submission emotionally and nothing can surprise you, nothing can shock you, nothing can move you because the baseline of emotion's already been set so high. I think that's how I feel watching most movies. So these guys, these guys said what we're going to do is we're going to do the exact opposite. They said what we're going to do is we're going to make slow cuts. When a door closes, the camera's going to hang on it for five seconds longer than you've ever seen in a movie. We're going to have no music. There's no score. No music to tell you how to feel. Uh, our actors, we're going to get non-actors, and we're basically going to tell them not to act. <laughs> like, 
play it dry, play it dry, play it dry. Why did they do that? They just want to make a boring movie? This is where it gets really interesting. Each of those directors were on record saying what we want, why we did that is because what we wanted to do was find a way to depict the transcendent and to depict God. And so when we can dull the audience and make them lean in and work for even the slightest bit of sort of emotional like energy or jolt, when we get them in that state, then when we want to show you God, we bring the score in and we cut and we put the music and the actors get big and the tears come down and we can create these moments that snap you out of this dull reality into something far beyond what you could ever imagine. And these movies are they're amazing. They do it. And they're old and they're, I don't know, probably plenty of us would, would think they're boring. But it's, it's I, I think Mark is after this kind of same thing. He's using every sort of tool in his artistic toolkit Everything available him to unsettle you and to unsettle me. That when we think we are right next to Jesus, he's using every tool at his disposal to totally subvert what you think you are, what you think discipleship is, how you think power works, how you think beauty and everything works in his kingdom. That's what Mark is doing. That's what Mark is doing. So, we're going to conclude in just a couple minutes. We're just going to look at one verse from the Gospel of Mark. Let's put it up. Mark 1.1. It's the prologue. It's the title of the book, essentially. Mark 1.1 says this. It says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It says, Here's what I'm about to tell you. For 16 chapters... I'm going to tell you. And I, what's interesting is that phrase, beginning. It's, it's debated. Does he just mean like the first few verses? Is that the beginning of the gospel? But I, I, I'm kind of convinced, as many scholars think, that he's referring to his whole book as the beginning of the gospel. The whole book is the start of the story. And we're going to get there, but the ending of Mark is like a non-ending. Like they, some women go to the tomb and they're told that Jesus is gone. And that's it. We don't even get to see Jesus. And it leaves you with this hanging ellipsis that's, again, scandalous. Like, what? You left us with, like, not even a confirmation that he's raised from the dead, Mark? And I think it's the very, that the very point of that, again, is Mark is pushing you. He's prodding you to consider. If that's the beginning of the story, where does it go? What are you going to do to carry that story forward into its middle? We've gotten previews about how it's going to end, his return, but now we're in the middle, and we're all players in this story. It says this is the beginning. This letter is the beginning of what? Of the gospel. And we just talked about that two weeks ago at length. The good news, this, this kingdom announcement that something has happened that has changed Everything, specifically the Son of God has come into the world to die for the sins of the world, to offer forgiveness, to offer restoration of relationship with God, 
to offer a future hope and promise of an eternal life with him as part of his kingdom community and a new heavens and a new earth. And you can go on and on and on about the things that make the gospel good. And that he offers it not because, not to people who are good enough or smart enough or wise enough or good looking enough or successful enough or rich enough or powerful enough or whatever. He offers it through faith alone. He says it's the gospel of Jesus Christ specifically. And, and Jesus Christ, we, we're, we're numb to that. It's a loaded phrase. The word Jesus or Yeshua in the Hebrew um, means Yahweh is salvation. And the word Christ, Christos, uh, is a transliteration of the Hebrew for Messiah, which means he's the promised and prophesied anointed king. Even the name Jesus, is, Jesus Christ, is loaded down. It says, this is Yahweh is salvation, the promised and prophesied anointed king. Mark tells us. And not just that, but he's the son of God. And he's alive and reigning. And though the gospel ends with his death and the reports of his resurrection, he is still, this is only the beginning. Jesus lives and he reigns and he is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And he's divine himself, he's the son of God. And he has the best news possible. And what Mark is going to ask us time and time again over our months in it is what kind of implications does this have? If all this is true, and I, some of you, I don't assume everyone in this room believes that this is true. I don't assume that you, that you think that Jesus is who Mark says he is. But if you do come to believe that, and I pray that you will, Mark is going to continue to ask, what kind of implications does this have for your life? What is your role in the middle of this story that Jesus has begun? Like Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? And then what does that mean for your life? Because it can't mean nothing. It can't just mean business as usual if he is who he says he is. And you're convinced of it. So, we're going to come to these questions again and again and again over the next several months. And our, our hope is that as we enter year, year two as a church community, it has been a weird year as a church community. <laughs> I don't know if you realize, we, we formally started as a church community March 1st, 2020. And uh, we had another worship gathering March 8th, 2020. And then we had to start wearing masks and we had to get out of this building. And for a while we didn't see each other because we didn't know what was going on. But then we've started working out. Now we're meeting in small groups, many of us every week. And we're trying, we're, we're trying to cling to community together around Jesus. But as we enter the second year as a, as a new church community, we thought there's nothing that we could do better than to try to get all of us together as one body to come face to face once again with the person of Jesus who is not dead. He is alive and reigning now. And to let Mark take us right up close to him and press us 
and scandalize us and unsettle us and challenge our assumptions and push us to come to see, yes, he is who Mark and who Peter and who Luke and who John and who Matthew and who Paul, who they said he was. More than that, he's who he said he was. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Son of God. And he's worth following with everything you have. And if you don't believe that now, just hang out with us. Start reading Mark. Start listening to to us shamble our way through trying to preach through it. And see if Jesus doesn't come meet you and show you who he is and that it's the best possible news you could ever hear. That's what we want. So let's pray. Let's pray that he does that now, and then we're going to worship some more in a minute.